The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, February 14th, 2019. From Slate of the Gist, I'm Mike Pasca. So we began the show yesterday with talk of, uh, let us say, attentive members. And if you listen on Slate Plus, I know you are. It was a linguistic inquisition into the meaning of a priapic idiom, if you will. Please, I hope you will. And I I will forever commit to you that I will follow lines of inquiry no matter where they lead. But in this case, I did so not without some qualms, some wary qualms, to say nothing of hairy palms. No, no, here is the thing. We were having a presidential candidate come in for an interview today. I don't want to reveal which one. But it might rhyme with beat putitage. So I had this vision in my mind of a serious-minded public servant in the car on the way over to Slate's headquarters to be interviewed, him saying to his assistant, so what's this gist I've heard so much about? Let me call it up in my uh, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever I get my podcast. What? Huh? What's he talking about? Heart what? No! I'm a Midwesterner! No, sir! And I didn't want that. And yet, still... I couldn't hold off. I sometimes think of things that I don't say. I want you to know that. People don't believe that. Sometimes, though, I can can have self-control. I really can. Uh, Let me give you an example. Recently, the richest man in the world addressed his being blackmailed by the National Enquirer by going on a certain website. And I remember thinking, you know, if the story were about my manhood... I would think twice about putting my thoughts on medium. I just wouldn't want medium to be associated with that particular topic, especially if I owned an outlet called The Post. Do you know what I'm saying? But I thought that, but I didn't say that because I like to be highbrow. I like to go where my muse and the news takes me. And I was resigned. So today on the show, I opened the international section, was hoping to talk about Chinese negotiations or Venezuela. But then right there, New York Times story on the Iranian missile program. And there was a graphic. And this graphic very clearly labeled the no dong engine from North Korea powers Iranian missiles and rockets. No, no, no dong. No. And it continued. By the 1990s, Iran was importing a North Korean missile known as the Nodong, which it renamed the Shahab-3. Translated from the Persian, that means, oh, I'm pretty good down there, actually. No, Shahab-3 means the Shooting Star 3. The Nodong's powerful engine, this is, again, direct quote from the Times, the Nodong's powerful engine, seven feet long from nozzle to fuel pumps, eventually became the first stage propulsion unit for a yai oh my god, Lord, why doth thou tempt me so? And listen, I've held back on this for years. I've known about the no-dong. I, I recalled when Stephen Colbert joked about it in 2016. No-dong. Most men just get a sports car. He got a missile. Let him have his tomfoolery. I said nothing at the time. Lou Dobbs talked about it and another type of related Korean missile. Another typo. Go ahead. You say it. You know, we're not worried about North Korea's longest range missile, the Taipodong 2, because it takes weeks to assemble fuel test. And still, I said nothing. 
PBS let loose with a barrage of opportunity you would think would overcome even my iron dome of propriety. He says the North has succeeded in miniaturizing nuclear weapons to the point where they can be mounted on the country's Nodong and Tepodong-2 missiles. Oh my God. But today, the Times, in a color graphic, had the Nodong, and for size comparison, they put the Nodong next to a six-foot-tall man. It didn't say if the man had perhaps just gotten out of a cold swimming pool, But look, like the Iranian missile program itself, I know this is all potentially explosive. I must resist. I want to, I want to let you know I can resist. You are welcome. And I will resist. Courage. And penis. On the show today, I spiel about the comeuppance of a billionaire who recently grappled with Pecker. Is it me? Is it, is this fair? Anyway, let me pivot. Start spreading the news. Amazon's leaving today. Progressive blowback hounds the world's richest man out of Queens. A big win for New York. If by winning, you mean losing out on $27 billion. That's what happened. But first, when disco ends and pop begins, who is there to catch it? Chris Malamphy. That's who. We're counting down the top hits of 1979. Up next. In 1979, Jimmy Carter took to the national airwaves and spoke of, though not explicitly using the word, malaise. It seemed like they were wearing sweaters in the White House, hostages were in Iran, things were not going well. Except on the billboard charts. Let me tell you, the Bee Gees were burning up the airwaves, Gloria Gaynor would survive, and even the Doobie Brothers were telling us what a fool believes. I don't know why I included that one in the list of otherwise really, really good hits. Chris Malamphy is here, he is the podcaster, and genius behind the hit parade podcast why is this song number one is a column he writes for slate hello chris how are you genius mike i'm very flattered <laughs> it's true it is true as well does it apply to the brothers gib let's start with them oh good because segue they have three number one songs this year and is it, are they all from the same album they are indeed from the same album that would be spirits having flown which is basically their follow-up to the saturday night fever soundtrack and like the saturday night fever soundtrack it generated three number one hits in fact by generating these three number one hits the gibbs tied a record with the beatles they had six consecutive number one songs back to back to back you mean of the singles they released they all of the singles they released well. right not counting album cuts etc they had six back-to-back number one hits that would eventually be broken in the 80s by Whitney Houston, who had seven in a row. But six, they tied the Beatles. And those three songs from the album Spirits Having Flown, all of which went to number one in early 1979, are Too Much Heaven. Tragedy, their slightly more rock-flavored, up-tempo disco cut. And finally, Love You Inside Out, which is probably the strangest and most forgotten of the three. It's almost a lounge disco cut. Too Much Heaven was the first number one song of the year, and the second number one was by Chic L'Afrique. And and Chic is Nile Rodgers, right? I mean, Nile Rodgers and some backups? No. Tell me about it. Actually, okay, no. The two masterminds behind Chic are Nile Rodgers, and this is a very important person, Bernard Edwards, his partner. Oh, yeah. They were, effectively, Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards were the masterminds behind Chic. And Bernard Edwards is important because he played some of the most immortal bass lines. Sure they can be 
Uh, Chic had two number one hits in 1979, in fact, Le Freak, and later in the year, the legendary Good Times, which features a bass line that you and I have actually talked about before, Mike, because it's been copied so many times. It turned into Another One Bites the Dust for Queen. It was rapped over and became Rapper's Delight. Yeah, pretty much invented rap. So so Nile Rodgers, they're busy pretty much defining, if not inventing disco, and by association, inventing rap. And and Bernard (laughs) Edwards is right there with him. So the two of them are are major movers. And Le Freak, of course, is their song where they are... uh, you know, complaining about not being able to get into a club. They were denied entrance at Studio 54. They couldn't get past the velvet rope. They went back to the studio, and at first, uh, what they recorded was a song whose chorus went, Ah, fuck off. And realizing that would never get played on the radio, they turned it into Ah, freak out. And for a time, this single was the best-selling single in Atlantic Records history. It sold millions of copies. Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive goes to number one for three non-consecutive weeks. This is an anthem that has, in fact, survived. It's a classic, and it's written by, uh, co-written by a songwriter who is a legend, sort of a quiet legend. People don't talk about him often, but Freddie Perrin, who wrote most of the early number one hits for the Jackson 5, including I Want You Back, he wrote I Will Survive. And the most notable detail, which I mentioned in a Hit Parade episode last year, is that uh, I Will Survive started as a B-side. They didn't realize that this was the frontline hit. Gloria Gaynor was... Basically, the queen of disco before Donna Summer was called the queen of disco. She'd been scoring club hits dating all the way back to the early to mid 70s. And then she fell off for a little bit. And I Will Survive was her comeback. But everybody thought that Substitute was going to be the A side. And in fact, I Will Survive, which is an unusually verbose song, as pop songs go, it's very verbose to say nothing of disco songs. So I don't think everybody, Gloria Gaynor included, realized what they had with I Will Survive. Uh, next up, Blondie, Heart of Glass. Yeah. So, look, there's a lot of innovation here, a lot of uh, taking advantage of trends. But, I mean, to me, Blondie is the one who is, uh, that whole band is marking a new kind of music in a big way. And Heart of Glass exemplifies that. That's absolutely true. By this point on the Parallel Lines album, Blondie have already been around for a few albums, and they are basically among the the first wave of punk and new wave bands from CBGB in New York City. So for them to record a disco song was considered sacrilege by certain portions of their audience. It was the only disco-like song on Parallel Lines. The rest of Parallel Lines sounds like a traditional rock album with punk elements. According to uh, Mike Chapman, their producer, Heart of Glass started as many different types of songs. Uh, supposedly, it was at one time... It was a funk song. He claimed they even had a reggae version. And then it was finally determined in the studio, well, what if we kind of did a ride cymbal and, you know, funked it up a bit and did it as a disco song? And that was the version that stuck. broke Blondie into a completely new level of fame. 
arguably between 1979 and 1981, it was a very brief period, Blondie were kind of the premier pop rock band in America. Mm-hmm. They had four number one hits and none of them sound like the other. They're all in a different genre. This is sort of my favorite detail about Blondie. You have a disco song, Heart of Glass. About a year later, you have a more up-tempo electro rock song, Call Me, which goes to number one. A year after that, not quite a year, you have a, a reggae song, really a rock steady song, The Tide is High. And then their last number one hit is a rap song, a partial sort rap of, song, yes, yes. a partial rap, rap song, Rapture, Rapture yeah, which yeah. went to number one in 1981. And then their hits were mostly over, but it, they had an amazing two-year run where they were kind of the will-try-anything pop rock band in America. Donna Summer was all over the charts. Bad Girls, Hot Stuff, and a duet that I forgot about with Barbara Streisand. Yes, indeed. 1979 was Donna Summer's peak year. This is the year she releases the Bad Girls album, scores two number one hits from it, almost replaces herself at number one. There's only a brief interregnum between when Hot Stuff is number one in June. Don't you mean an interregnum? Yes. Ringnum? <laughs> yes, because she's interrupted by Ring My Bell by Anita Ward, uh, another sort of classic disco song. But uh, between Hot Stuff and Bad Girls, which is basically the song of the summer of 1979, uh, Donna Summer is commanding the charts. Uh, and moving interestingly in a rock oriented direction it's it's funny how not unlike tragedy by the Bee Gees uh, Donna was trying to mix in just a little bit of rock with her disco hot stuff in particular which is connected to what a fool believes by the Doobie Brothers because it features a guitar solo by Jeff Skunk Baxter uh, of the Doobie Brothers wins, by the way, the first ever Grammy for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance the following year. Donna Summer beating out Ricky Lee Jones, Bonnie Raitt, and Carly Simon for that uh, prize at the Grammys. So uh, Donna was kind of everywhere in 1979, finally capped off at the end of the year with her massive duet with none other than Barbara Streisand, No More Tears, Enough is Enough. Okay, here are a couple. I definitely know the song Pop Music by some group called M that's pop, pop, pop pop music that one that's actually a person who uh, went by the sobriquet m uh, is actually a brit named robin scott pop music is such an interesting record it's kind of like a couple of songs you can hear in this particular year it's kind of a hybrid between the 70s and the 80s. Robin Scott claimed he was uh, inspired by I Feel Love by Donna Summer, which kind of invented electronic dance music a couple of years before. Uh, and it's a record that, yes, is related to disco. It's absolutely a club record. It's a dance record. But it sounds as much like New Wave as it does like disco. It, what you're is explaining and describing is all these songs, all these genres, all these artists who've had success elsewhere sort of having to bend to the juggernaut that is disco. I mean, you know, you have to, Barbara Streisand has the disco-fi, and she doesn't have to, but she wanted to, and Herb Albert disco-fied, and that's how they find relevance again. Exactly. I mean, I'm going to make a counterintuitive pitch because I think having done episodes on Hit Parade about both Donna Summer and Bee Gees, my love of disco is pretty unimpeachable. But 
let's give the disco haters a little bit of credit, including those awful, awful people who were at Comiskey Park for Disco Demolition Night in July of 1979. They may have been extreme in their hatred, but they were not wrong that disco was the Borg that ate everything. If you are a rock fan in 1979, there's not a whole lot for you on the charts. The charts are dominated either by pure disco acts or rock acts that have adapted to disco. Everybody from Rod Stewart to Blondie to Herb Albert to, yes, Barbara Streisand uh, to, of course, the Bee Gees. By 1979, we considered them a disco group, but let's not forget that they started as a a British uh, rock act in the 60s. So if you were a rock fan in 1979, 1979, uh, there wasn't all that much for you on the charts. Except- yeah, and the rock songs were these soft rock kind of uh, Babe by Sticks or Heartache Tonight by the Eagles. They, You know, you don't have a hard guitar edge in those songs. I would say Heartache Tonight is probably the closest thing to a real rave-up kind of rock song, co-written by, you know, the Eagles with uh, Bob Seger and J.D. Sother. Uh, so it's the closest thing to a true rock-qua rock song that you mm-hmm. have except for one other record that we haven't talked about yet, which is, ironically enough, the number one song of 1979. And it's, like M's pop music, a record that sounds both like the 70s and like the 80s. It's My Sharona by The Knack. Spend six weeks at number one was an absolute sensation. When the Knack came out, the band led by Doug Feger, they even sort of positioned themselves as a new Beatles. For their album, Get the Knack, they were even photographed looking like uh, they were on the set of A Hard Day's Night. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about My Sharona, which is now considered a somewhat classic new wave record, is that at the time, the Knack were loved and hated in equal measure. Rock fans kind of clung to them as a life raft in a year where disco was sort of dominating everything, but they were equally hated by rock fans for sort of their insta-success and uh, the flimsiness of their their record and the fact that, you know, My Sharona is pretty sexist tripe, not that that was a problem necessarily <laughs> in rock and roll in 1979. The Knack were the exception to the rule uh, in in 1979, and they wound up with the top hit of the year. We, there are a couple other artists maybe we didn't mention. The Commodores had a hit with Still, Rupert Holmes, the Pina Colada song, although I The would, last number one song of the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. But I would say that right there in the 1970s was the seeds of the man who would be the king of pop. Not that Michael Jackson hadn't had hits and with the Jackson 5, but to me, you can make the argument and, and with a lot of credibility that Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is his greatest song. I would not necessarily argue with that. It's between that and Billie Jean for me, probably. Yeah. Uh, but uh, don't and stop. Billie t- Jean, the associated with Thriller, probably gets more credence because that was when we knew he was the king of pop. But this is just, if you have one song to put on, to listen to, to say, what is the greatness of Michael Jackson? You could do worse than Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. It is impossible to overstate the importance of Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, both as a transition in Michael Jackson's career and a transition into the 1980s. It's a disco record that transitions into what will be the sound of centrist pop in the 1980s. Um, It is a record written 
largely by Michael Jackson. There's been some controversy that uh, Greg Fillingaines, uh, a keyboardist and songwriter who worked with Quincy Jones, really deserved some of the songwriting credit because he wrote uh, the uh, midsection, the breakdown in the middle of the record. But other than that, this is a record penned by Michael Jackson. It's his first number one hit basically as an adult. He'd, yeah. he'd scored all those hits with his brothers in the Jackson 5. He'd scored a number one hit with Ben in the early 70s. But this is his coming out party as an adult, as a as a frontline superstar and it leads off off the wall and basically changes the course of not only his career but basically pop in the 1980s chris malamphy is the man behind the hit parade podcast he is the author of why is this song number one an ongoing column from slate magazine chris thank you so much thank you mike And now the spiel. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio had called Amazon's decision to move to Queens, quote, the single biggest economic development deal in New York City history, meaning he just lost the single biggest economic development deal in New York City history. I am pretty upset about this. Is it that I hate Long Island City? Quite the opposite, though the interplay between Rachel Brosnahan and Tony Shalhoub is exquisite. I'm most interested in Amazon's prime numbers. Those numbers being 3 and 27. And yes, I know 27 isn't prime. I know numbers. I wonder sometimes if anyone else does. Because Amazon was to get $3 billion in subsidies. In exchange, the state, meaning me, because I live in the state, and the city, also meaning me, I live here, was to get $27 billion flowing into its coffers. Any business in the world would have gotten most of those subsidies by law. Yes, that's right. A business run by the world's richest man or a business run by mm, Murray, the miscellaneous manufacturer with multiple bankruptcies. I mean, I guess we could offer poor down on their luck business owners some subsidies when they bring 25,000 jobs into New York City. But I don't think those are the types who actually have 25,000 jobs to bring into New York City. It's almost as if the more great-paying jobs a company has to offer, the more likely it is that their CEO is very well compensated. I've come to believe that the most successful companies, sometimes with the best jobs, happen sadly to be run by fellows, almost always fellows, with the most money. There are exceptions. Did you know that the CEO of Archer Daniels Midland is an eight-year-old orphan girl with a plucky spirit and a dog named Brandon? Now, if anyone deserves subsidies from, oh, hold on, wait, I'm being told that's the plot of Punky Brewster. So maybe the narrative around Jeff and his helicopter bothered you, but let us, let us not focus on emotion. Let us focus on the $27 billion in that we were going to spend $3 billion to get. And by spend, I don't actually mean spend. I mean just forego in tax revenue. I know so many people who read or heard about this story actually literally thought they were paying taxes to Amazon. No, they were going to get, all of us collectively, were going to get about a billion dollars a year. Seemed like a good deal to me, not to some. Now, $3 billion in subsidies, $27 billion over 25 years that Amazon would be giving the state and city. Both of those numbers might be inflated by activists on each side, but I did read a lot about this, and they don't seem so far out of the realm of possibility as to be called bullshit upon, which is a service I provide. Covering the opposition to the Amazon deal is a service the media was glad to provide. Here is a quote from CNBC. Critics are questioning why Amazon, a multi-billion dollar company, needs billions of dollars in incentives. They don't need it. They just want it. Governor Andrew Cuomo is right. 
that even if they got it, it'd still be a good deal for New Yorkers. You know what the incentive package was? We get $27 billion in revenue. They get $3 billion back. We get 27 They get $3 billion back. Hey, come on, Mike. Isn't this just an example of the rich getting richer? It is. It is. By $3 billion, or at least they'd be paying $3 billion less than if they were paying full freight. But you know who else got richer or would have gotten richer? Every New Yorker by $27 billion. Of course, there are only 20 million New Yorkers, so it really comes out to only around $1,350. I mean, if I offered you $1,350... But it meant that a very, very wealthy man who doesn't need the money would also get rich. Would you take that? I'm sure within Amazon, they tell employees, guys, we had a great quarter and you're all going to get a raise. And some socially conscious employees say, wait a minute, if we had a great quarter and I'm getting a raise, does Jeff Bezos also benefit? Indeed, he does. Then I reject my raise. Governor Cuomo stuck by the deal. He defended it. He mostly, though, my political analysis is he mostly seemed to be staving off stories related to the political. Uh, He was worried that this or that agency could kill the deal. Cuomo is great at playing the inside game. He never was really a transcendent communicator. He never could get the public to rally around any message. And I think in this case, he was a bit blindsided by Amazon's withdrawal. He thought he could work the angles in Albany, shepherd the deal through, and let the naysayers be damned. Whereas Amazon wound up saying, damn those naysayers, because every other city in America really likes us. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio was far much less full-throated in his defense of Amazon. Here he was on MSNBC. Now, by contrast, this is pretty good. MSNBC, days after the announcement. A smart government says, we're here to bargain for the people. We need to get a lot back for the people. There's no question in my mind that that's what we're going to achieve here. New York City is already moving in the right direction. We have said we're going to be the fairest big city in America. We're going to make sure there's opportunity for all. This is going to help us do it. If we didn't... That's fine. But in recent days, he seemed much less cheerleader and more defensive coordinator. He continuously made the point, well, you know, a lot of these subsidies we had no control over. It's a fair point, but it's not trying to get the public to rally around the deal. It's almost as if he wanted to keep one foot in the camp of the progressives. Hey, still maintain his credibility with the progressives as opposed to do everything he could to help the city by getting this, you know, around $13 billion that would be going right to the city. Here he was on WNYC a couple weeks ago during a Ask the Mayor segment. Uh, We came up with a whole host of community benefits. We're going to be pushing for a lot more Oh, I've said very publicly, Amazon coming here means they are now in our environment with our values as New Yorkers, as a progressive place. We want to see jobs for public housing residents. We want to see uh, unionized employees in the distribution centers. And we're going to fight for that. And it, I think this is a, a truism. It's not where you begin. It's where you end. Why? So listen, I'm really upset. And I'm upset not because I was on the losing side of what I think is a fair debate. I I really believe this clearly would be a good to the mass of New Yorkers. And admittedly, it would be a strain to the exact neighborhood, Long Island City, that Amazon was going to go into. Okay, I'll admit that. but But I know that what defeated this deal, why Amazon pulled out, was mostly because of asinine misperceptions. Ignorance. Plainly ignorance. I would have just loved a chance to sit down with de Blasio and Cuomo and give him a little communications advice. Okay, guys, thanks for coming in. Please, uh, opposite sides of the couch, no problem. Okay, 
We got a problem here, a PR problem, but I'm not bullshitting. This is actually a good problem because it's not one of those problems we're trying to get people to see actual facts in a different light to accept a different frame. We're not trying to spin a tough argument. We have an opportunity because all we need to do is educate people about a fact. Most people hold an incorrect belief and we have to change that belief. It's it. This is something we could do. Analogies. Analogies come in handy. The fact is most New Yorkers think that their taxes will actually be going to Amazon. That when they write a check at the end of the year to New York City or New York State or when they get their money withhold, some portion of that is going to Amazon and Jeff Bezos' helicopter. Well, we know that's not true. So here's what we do. We maybe make fun of Jeff Bezos and the helicopter. We maybe vilify him a little bit or we just mock the idea in general. Folks, trust me, mark my words. Jeff Bezos, he's not getting your money. Your taxes are not going to woo Amazon. That's not how it works. What we did is we gave Amazon a coupon or like a bar has a happy hour. That's what we did. And maybe you could argue that two for one drinks is too generous. Maybe you could argue, you know, we could have gotten the same size crowd in here with like a dollar off well liquor. Maybe I'm going to say that's a fair point. You, you guys, if you want, I know it doesn't come easy. You could be a little humble. You could say, look, I know what you're saying. I hear the community and we're going to look into this in the future and maybe we're going to not be as generous with the discount offered on the coupon. But we gave like a 10% off coupon. You're right. Maybe we should have given 5%. Maybe we should have given 0%, but I don't know if that always works. Let's talk about it. I'm listening. But it was 10%. We gave out this 10% coupon, but the numbers are so big. So a 10% coupon in this case was $3 billion in breaks and grants, but we're talking about almost $28 billion coming in. Wouldn't you take that? Look, I know everyone who owns like the stop and shop supermarket says, why should I give any discount? I got a great supermarket here. We got a good butcher's department, uh, Little Debbie snack cakes at $2.99. Why do any discount? Because if you don't do a discount, you might get no money. And guess what? We didn't want to risk not making an offer where we wouldn't get Amazon's $28 billion. Here, here's how the math works. You know what the tax rates are. We got 25,000 employees. They're making an average of 150000 each. That's $400 million. We're taking all of that money. You're getting all of that money. $400 million a year from these employees. There'll probably be more employees than that. They're probably going to get paid more than that. It's a great deal. You're getting richer too. Is Amazon getting richer? Yeah, who cares? That's fine. You're getting richer. I'm not going to lie. There are challenges. By the way, people love when you do this part and you mean it. You should mean it. That Long Island City subway station... It's going to be really crowded. If you rent in Long Island City, your rent is probably going to go up. Let me pause here. There's a communications technique. Say Long Island City over and over. Talk about the problem being visited on Long Island City. Make it salient that this is a tension between Long Island City, the neighborhood of Long Island City, and everyone else. It's a little selfish on people's part, but it's a rational selfishness. They might start to think, well, all right. It is sad that Long Island City gets screwed, but I want that money for me, the New Yorker who doesn't live in Long Island City. Now, what if you're acting 25,000 people? I mean, that's a lot of people, 25,000 people. Let me, let, me, let me give you an idea of what that is. Let's say Madison Square Garden announced a plan 
to add 59 seats. Would you say, oh my God, we can't do it? Well, guess what? 59 seats, as compared to the capacity of Madison Square Garden, is the same as 25,000 jobs in a city of 8.6 million people. Let's say I told you, taxis, we're adding 36 more of them. Are you saying to yourself, oh my God, what are we going to do with all the extra taxis? But 36 more taxis out of the 13,000 taxis, the same as an increase of 25,000 to a city of 8.6 million people. Again, take that point if you want. It's not the most important number. The most important number is almost 28 billion in, 400 million in income tax. 28 billion in, a billion a year for 25 years. We're getting 28 billion. Don't you want 28 billion? Long Island City, we're going to help Long Island City. Long Island City is going to take it on the chin so the rest of us can get our $28 billion, a billion a year. Meaning if you're against this Amazon deal, you're against the billion dollars a year for the rest of us. Make it into that, a rest of us. 400 million in taxes, a billion a year for the rest of us. This is the rest of us versus the activists and perhaps one very vocal member of Congress who's from the neighboring district from Long Island City. And by the way, okay, I'll stop with my fake colloquy to de Blasio and Cuomo. You guys could use separate exits on the way out. By the way, if you were wondering, this site was not even in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's district. It was in Carolyn Maloney's district. Carolyn Maloney has been in office for 26 years. She was steamrolled by the more impassioned and adept at social media, AOC, who has been in office for 43 days. My message, I'm done with Cuomo and de Blasio, my message to Rep. Maloney, who is pro-Amazon, but didn't do anything about it, it, my message isn't about a message, it's about a communications overhaul. I would tell her, get a new communications director, or better yet, a whole new media staff, or you know what, just quit Congress. Because if you're going to get dunked on like this, it will be an embarrassment to you personally and a disservice to the people of New York who just lost out on a, you guessed it, billion dollars a year, but in return they got the nice feeling of a retweet. And that's it for today's show. You know, once just producers Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader were afraid, they were petrified, and they were right to be because they knew I asked for some Korean missile-related clips to be pulled, and they sensed where this whole thing was going. T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, she has gotten over her mucho mistrust of questionable Spanish in Blondie lyrics. Guess what? I am off for tomorrow and Tuesday. There's no... I'm off Monday, but it's President's Day. Let us honor the presidents. But on Tuesday, I'll be gifting you with a guest host, Barry Lamb, who hosts the Hi-Fi Nation podcast. He'll be here in my chair. The gist, and I just figured out Donna Summer's problem. Let's pay attention. Sitting here, eating my heart out, waiting, waiting for some lover to call. Dialed about a thousand phone numbers lately. Almost rang the phone off the wall. Well, guess what? Your lover's not calling because you're on the phone dialing numbers. There was no call waiting in 1979. Bad girl indeed. Bad at phone etiquette. Oomperu depperu duperu. And thanks for listening.